Good morning, and Happy New Year. My wife Alice and I started attending PBC, I think, 38 years ago. And over there, John Tong and I—John Tong was my roommate at Stanford—and uh, we came 41 years ago, and he was very old by then. <laughs> anyway, after Alice and I got married, uh, I was doing grad school, and and my family is sitting over there. We have two daughters. Um, and two granddaughters now. And I still remember my daughters would race each other in the auditorium, crawling under the pews all the way from the back to the front and see who could get here first. And it was a fun time, and this will remain our home. And I hope that this will be your home too over the next 38 years, if not more. When Alice found out that I signed up uh, to preach this year, she asked me, what was I going to preach? Because it's a tradition that we, as an elders, get to preach the sermon after the Christmas service. I said that, well, I have been doing this series uh, with the elders meeting. Uh, in, it involves a group of seven stories in which God brought a son into the lives of a childless couple. Like, if you remember the gift of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. So I thought that I was going to do that. And I have nicknamed this series Barren Women, Miraculous Births, and Clueless Husbands. Because with most of these stories, the focus was on the mother. The husband would just kind of tag along. Now before I want to return, continue recounting this conversation, I want to talk briefly about two topics as a digression kind of on childlessness and ancient Near East literature. This first topic, childlessness, is a personal one. Alice and I were unable to have biological children. For quite a few years, we worked with some of the best facility specialists in the area. And I still remember one of them telling us that when you are down to your last $10,000 in the bank, you should pursue adoption. And that's what we did. In fact, some of the faithful friends we had during that time who prayed and supported us are still sitting here today. Those years were difficult, but our experience paled in comparison to a childless woman in the ancient Near East. The community then did not have the science nor the technologies regarding infertility. Childlessness brought great misfortune and shame Barrenness, whether it is associated with a piece of land or a couple, was God's punishment. And practically speaking, children were necessary uh, to perpetuate the family name and to pass land from one generation to another. Unfortunately, the wife was mostly blamed for the problem, and the husband was therefore under some pressure to find alternatives to produce a male offspring. In contrast, the Bible and its contemporary literature regarded a fruitful woman as blessed. She was a blessing to, his, uh, to the husband's family. Secondly, I want to briefly touch on one aspect of ancient Near Eastern literature. The text often embeds structures and symmetries to help the readers interpret and understand the text. I have used formatting and colors throughout this morning's slides to point out some of these, 
but I won't have time to explain all of them. Now back to the conversation with Alice. Now she agreed that narratives do provide good preaching materials, but suggested that I look at what she was studying with BSF at the time. Now they were going through Second Kings before making uh, make a final decision. Second Kings covered the period when Israel was divided into two kingdoms after Solomon's death. Life was filled with war, violence, hunger, pain, and confusion. I was trying to look for verses to illustrate this, but they were very, very explicit and it's probably not appropriate when children are present. At, in November, BSF was going through the story of Naaman, an army commander of the powerful Syrian army who was living with an incurable skin disease. At the advice of his Jewish servant girl, Naaman decided to travel to Israel and ask the prophet Elisha for help. His boss, the king of Syria, wrote him a letter to bring to Joram, the king of Israel, asking him to help. The reaction of Joram, the king of Israel, upon receiving this letter was recorded in 2 Kings 5, 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive? that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy, he is seeking a quarrel with me. The phrase, am I God to kill and to make alive, provided the perfect intro to the next story in the series, where a baby was miraculously born, suddenly died, and was raised again. The first section of today's passage, 2 Kings 4, 8 to 11, provides the backdrop. One day, and you can read on together with me. Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God, who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls, and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. Now with the other six stories of childlessness in the Bible, at least one of the parents were named, and the child would go on to play a significant role after he grew up. Isaac, Jacob and Esau, the twins, and Joseph became patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Samson, born to Manoah and his wife, delivered Israel from the Philistines. Samuel, born to Hannah and Elkanah, became the kingmaker to anoint Saul and David. And finally, John the Baptist, born to Elizabeth and Zechariah would pave the way for our Lord Jesus Christ. However, the account we're reading today is different and unique. Both parents remained anonymous and little is known about the child after he grew up. Nevertheless, we do, do know quite a bit about the mother. First, she was a Jew from Shunem, a place belonging to the tribe of Issachar. Second, she was more than just wealthy. This word was actually usually translated as great. 
And this is the only place in the New Testament where this word was associated with a woman. Besides being wealthy, she was also a woman of substance, and as we will discover, a force to reckon with. Looking at how she provided for Elisha, you would get a sense that she was kind, sensitive to the needs of the others, and practiced hospitality. She also had ideas and did not hesitate to act on them. She even managed to convince the city hall to let her construct an ADU on her flat roof with a separate entrance to minister to a traveling prophet, often hungry and tired. Now this next section might look a bit confusing at first sight because verse 14 and 13 actually give the appearance that Elisha was not directly addressing the woman even though the three of them were apparently all together. And the text actually would make a lot more sense if you look at it as a summary of the private conversations between Elisha and his servant Gehazi, or as a summary of the exchanges with the woman over a period of time. Let's start with verse 12. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. I want to make three comments before ending this section. One, the Shunammite woman said, I dwell among my own people, when Elisha asked what could be done for her. She believed that she had all she needed because the community was her people. They had embraced her, although she did not have children and most likely because she treated everyone just like how she treated Elisha. She was sensitive, kind, and hospitable. Two, her childlessness was no secret. Even to a traveling prophet's chief of staff, her problem, even, even to, the, to a traveling chief of staff, traveling prophet's chief of staff, the problem in this case lay with her husband who was too old to have children. There was nothing that she could do. Three, she did not ask Elisha for help. She did not want to confront her childlessness. Nevertheless, God prompted Elisha to proclaim that she was going to have a son in verse 16. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son. About that time, the following spring, as Elisha has said to her. Now in Genesis 18, the Lord also told Abraham and Sarah that they were going to be parents about this time next year. And just like 
Sarah, the Shunammite woman, was surprised. But unlike Sarah, she did not laugh. Now why didn't she bring up her childlessness when asked what could be done for her, especially when it was so obvious and culturally important? Maybe she was reluctant to confront a painful subject, or maybe she was finally moving on, finding fulfillment in being hospitable and getting involved in her community. But had she really given up? After all, she was still of childbearing age. In the end, she was probably scared and reluctant to try again. She did not want to have her hopes raised and brutally dashed. It was easier to let sleeping dogs lie. Then one year later, God's promise would be fulfilled in verse 17. This section illustrates a classic chiastic structure where the focal point is bookended by matching phrases before and after. In this section, the green text identifies Elisha, our speaker who pronounced God's promise. The blue text identifies a specific time frame for the fulfillment of the promise. And the red text contains the content of the promise itself that she would bore a son. The focal points of this passage lies right in the middle. It serves as a climax. You see an act of God overcoming fear, disbelief, and trepidation as the miraculous time-specific birth of this baby boy was promised immediately before and fulfilled immediately after. The focal point also serves as a pivot a turning point. Even as this young person pushed back against the promise in the first half of the text and said, no, do not lie to your servant, she would nevertheless conceive in the second half of the text. Now a few years would pass without incident as the child grew up, but unfortunately, the hope that begins this section in verse 18 would end in despair two verses later. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon and then he died. It was harvest time, a joyous occasion, and the boy wanted to accompany his dad and the servants first thing in the morning to experience life on the farm. Unfortunately, tragedy struck. The boy that was given to the Shunammite woman out of the blue, whom she embraced just a few years ago, now lay dead in her lap within a few hours with no apparent causes or visible injuries. The mother, however, would not give up. As she was embracing her dying son, she devised a plan that would now unfold, starting in verse 21. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. 
Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon or Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. To the reader's surprise, the Shunammite woman did not wail or mourn. Instead, she took deliberate steps to make sure that she could leave the house and find Elisha without delay. No conversations with anybody. So she secluded her son's body away from the main house, from her husband, and from the rest of the household, and kept her son's death a secret. There was a lot of urgency in the text. Read in verse 22. She asked for a servant and a donkey so that she may quickly go and come back again. In verse 24, without waiting for the servant, she saddled the donkey herself and told her servant to urge the animal on, not slackening the pace for her unless instructed. In contrast, in verse 23, in the eye of the storm, she said, all is well. She remained calm and composed as she executed her plan step by step. Now, not long after that, as she approached Mount Carmel, Eliza would sense a disturbance in the force. We just visited Disneyland in Christmas. <laughs> just as she kept her husband in the dark to leave the house, she would reveal nothing to Gehazi to get a face-to-face with Elisha. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all else all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? She answered again, all is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So to convey a a sense of urgency and the emotions of the narrative intensifies, you will see these phrases um, appears in triplet later on in this section. The first one would be here where Gehazi would ask her whether everything was all right three times. Although she said all is well, nothing was well in reality. The child was dead. Gehazi even tried to push her away. And to everyone's surprise, Elisha, the great prophet, the holy man of God, admitted that he too was caught off guard. God has withheld this development from him. The Shunammite would now demand that Elisha to tell her what was going on and wanted something to be done. Verse 28, then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? 
Did I not say, do not deceive me? No, she did not ask Elisha for a son, and yes, she has specifically asked not to be deceived. But now, it appeared that God gave her a taste of motherhood and abruptly took it back. This deception of giving her a child a few years and only to take him away seemed crueler and deeper than her initial thought, initial fear that the promise of a baby would simply not materialize. If God were loving, just and powerful, and Elijah was God's man, how could this be happening? What was God doing and why? Neither Elisha nor the Shunammite woman had answers. As King Joram would testify later, only God can kill and make alive. Yes, God could, but would he and how? Elisha may even wonder to himself whether he misread God this time and whether God would use him to save the boy. Together, Elisha and the Shunammite woman had to trust God and discover what he has installed for him next. They were on the same roller coaster. Now one thing Elisha seemed to know was that they had to hurry. So he said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Now we don't quite know Eli what Elisha was planning, and maybe he really didn't know what he was doing too, but he sort of started the process. Why did he send Gehazi? Did he intend to go himself? Or would he take too long to travel? Why the hesitation? Would God simply raise the boy by his staff? or what's gonna happen next? Verse 30, you read, then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he rose and followed her. You see, although these may be the last words in this, last of her spoken words in this narrative, she was not quite done. She now took the lead to return insisting that Elisha would follow in spite of his apparent hesitation. She would not rest until her child was revived. No one knew how the story would end and they marched on, did not give up. We have to do the same today in real life. Most of the time, we may not know what would happen next. We pray and then we show up where and when we need to. There is no formula that could compel the creator of the universe, our loving father, to act according to our will. He is God. But we know that he loves us and he has already heard our prayers. Verse 31. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child but there was no sound or sign of life. And therefore he returned to meet him and told him the child has not awakened. What would Elisha do now? Young people today would Google 
or crowdsource on Facebook groups or whatnot for solutions. Those of us who went to school would do literature search or reach out through our professional networks. Find a subject matter expert. In the ancient Near East, however, history was passed on through word of mouth and knowledge and skills through apprenticeship. At this point, Elisha would probably recall a similar situation involving his mentor, Elijah, with the widow and her son. In 1 Kings 18, the child also died suddenly, and the mother also wondered why God could be so cruel, taking away what was preserved earlier on. The child's healing also took place in an upper chamber behind closed doors with the child placed on Elijah's bed. Finally, Elijah stretched himself upon the child more than once before his life would return. Did Elijah understand why Elijah did what he did? Would repeating the same steps his mentor took so many years ago save this child today? What Elijah could only count on was that God was with him. Just as God sent him to accompany the Shunammite woman, God himself was with Elisha. Now we come to a very long section starting in verse 32 to the end of the story. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child laying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth, his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child would become warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house, and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. And so he called her, and when he, she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. I will con this, conclude this section again with three comments. Firstly, Elisha had to be persistent. He went upstairs and tried to revive the boy without success. He then came downstairs, took a break, and literally walked once here and walked once there before going back up. Secondly, Elisha's actions were mostly symbolic. The Torah taught that if anyone touched a, touched a corpse, even a dead animal, he would be contaminated. Now, however, the opposite was happening here. As Elisha brought his body into full contact with the child, the holiness of God cleansed death from the boy. 800 years later, our Lord Jesus Christ would come to make embodied contact with death and sin to bring us back to life. And just as Elisha, instead of being contaminated by the sin and death he took on, 
His holiness cleanse death from us, gifting his, us eternal life. Thirdly, life returned, returned to the child perfectly with no uncertainty. Now in the ancient Near East, the number seven symbolized completeness and perfection. Interestingly, the word sneezed occurred only once in the entire Old Testament. Air or wind, the sign of life, was forcefully expelled from the boy's nostril seven times. This is a picture of a full and excessive return of life, enough to expel the extra seven times over. By then, my guess is that Elisha was exhausted and relieved. The Shunammite woman was awestruck and grateful. Gehazi was probably still processing, and the husband was, well, likely clueless. In conclusion, today you may see yourself in the shoes of the Shunammite woman. Maybe you are in a season of wanting. Maybe you are having a hard time believing the promises of God. Maybe you feel deceived by him and are asking why. Maybe you have seen his miraculous provision and are in awe. Whichever season you are in, what can this text offer you this morning? Again, three things. One, God is gracious and knows our needs. Even if you feel like you are anonymous, you're nobody, like the unnamed woman of this story, God is watching. He is the God who sees. He knows you by name. Two, God will fulfill his promises to us when the time is ripe to the letter. We do not serve a God who deceives. He will bring a conclusion to our waiting. The interaction between children and their loving parents is a good analogy of our interaction with God. Good parents know and listen to their children. They respond appropriately at the right time. They may even surprise the children before they ask. In the same way, God listens to us. He understands who we are and what we need more than we do. He responds when we ask for help. He may even surprise us with joy. We must ask, we must, and then must ask and trust him, and we must wait on him. Three, finally, the words, the following spring in verse 17 is actually more poetic in the original Hebrew. It reads, when the land comes to life again. So verse 17 actually can be translated poetically as she bore a son when the time was ripe, when life returned to the land. So while things may look like winter to us right now, barren and cold, there is hope. Spring is only around the corner. Life will return. We will have strength to get through another day. We will not be alone.
we will have God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, last year was hard. What would this year look like? We don't know. Lord, there are many things that we have prayed for, but we have not heard from you. When are we going to hear from you, and what are you going to say? Oh Lord, I wish that things would be different in my life. But Lord, I also know that there is a purpose of what I am going through. Even though the things in my life may not be all that I want, I know that I am being transformed to a different person, to a person more like you, to a person easier to live with, to a person that reflects your glory in this non-believing society. We pray, Lord, that as we are fed from you, as we experience your love, and as your fullness overflow our lives, that we may in turn help our neighbors to appreciate love, to appreciate your infinite richness, and to call you Lord, and come before you, and ask, trusting that you will respond to them. Lord, you are not finished with us. Help us in this year to follow you even more closely. Hold our hands, hide us in your palms that we may not be afraid. Remind us that you are with us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you.